In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. I spent all week trying to think of an analogy for the Tower of Babel, people building big buildings and putting their names on them and dedicating them to vice and to sin. And I spent all week and I just couldn't think of any good examples of that. Uh, maybe you all can think of some. It, it escapes me. And then I thought, uh, you know, there is this aspect of technology, right? They had uh, new brick and mortar technology. And so maybe there's an example in our lives of a technology that is advertised about bringing us closer together and connecting us that actually separates us and isolates us and keeps us from paying attention to one another. I couldn't think of that either. Just, I racked my brains. What would be a good example of this? Um, maybe you all can think of something. Uh, but here we are reading the Tower of Babel, or is in the Septuagint it says uh, Babylon. And this Tower of Babel is a place where the ancients came together to uh, assert their own achievements, to put up their own names, to seek themselves and their own glory rather than the glory of God. And, and, and the Lord uh, punishing them for that. Uh, reading it is a children's story, which in, in some ways this really is. Um, you know, we, we sometimes think, oh... Uh, what was the Lord doing in punishing them for that? And wasn't that a really serious kind of a punishment, right, for building this building? We, we see them all over the world. This is a natural part of, of the human existence, right? As soon as a culture gets that technology to bake bricks, they build what are called ziggurats. We see them all over the, over the Levant. Uh, we see them as people move to South America. Ziggurats are, are there as well. Uh, and so, um, you know, what is it that the Lord is doing? Uh, again, reading it as a child, it seems so severe, this um, coming down and dispersing them and uh, in this way kind of cursing them and, and not allowing them to, to understand one another. Until you read it as an adult, I think, and then you see that, um, that this is a, a, a children's way of coming to understand uh, natural consequences. Uh, clearly, the Lord doesn't have to come down. It's not like he was someplace else and didn't know what they were doing. It's not like he, he didn't understand, and so he had to look around, right? This is a, a way of describing to children the consequences of sin. Because we know um, that if there was such a place in our world, if you could possibly imagine it, where people built tall buildings, dedicated to vice, and they were to go in there and, let's say, um, you know, bet their mortgage and lose it, um, that there would be a consequence to that, right? And that it would separate them from their family and those who were closest to them. Can you imagine that? It's a very natural consequence, right? Or somebody was to get a hold of a technology that had been built to them as a way of connecting with others and it actually separated from their loved ones and kept them from looking at them and talking to them. And the natural consequence was the breakup of a friendship or of a family, right? There's a natural consequence. And we wouldn't say, oh, because they were using this technology, the Lord came down and looked at them and then kept them from communicating. We would say it's a natural consequence, right? Of dedicating yourself to this thing that is about abusing other people and um, separating yourself from them, criticizing them and ridiculing them, right? And that's the natural consequences, this separation um, from one another. And the Lord sees this sin. He sees this consequence, which we deserve, right? We deserve the consequences of this sin. If we were to dedicate ourselves to glorifying ourselves and to um, separating ourselves from one another, uh, we're deserving of those consequences. Instead, the Lord is responding to heal us. 
This is the purpose of God becoming man. God becomes man to heal us of the consequences of this sin. God became man so that man might be healed and restored and become one with his neighbor and with God. God became man so that man might become one with God. God's response to this sin that we have in our lives is to heal us of it. And he does it first by becoming man and dwelling among us, by restoring our humanity, by restoring us to a better understanding of what it means to be a person. We read in the person of Jesus Christ what it means to connect with one another, what it means to be obedient to God the Father, what it means to submit to him and to submit to him in our lives and what our lives look like when we humble ourselves to God and when we um, humble ourselves to our neighbor and when we seek to become one with God and to serve him. And this is what Jesus describes, especially in this upper room discourse that we've been in now for many weeks. And you may remember that we read this uh, chapter here, chapter uh, 14 of John's Gospel, several weeks ago, but we didn't go all the way to verse 17. Uh, we read these earlier verses where Jesus is describing this unity that God desires. He desires to abide with us, to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us, right? To, to heal us from this separation that we've experienced in this Tower of Babylon and to bring us into unity with God. And he says that um, he will do that. He will live in unity with us. He will abide with us. He will dwell with us um, if... There's that theological word again. In John 14, verse 15, he starts, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we have the love of God, we will keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? They're not complex. The commandments of God, as we started the liturgy with, are to love God and to love our neighbor. So what does it mean to love God? It means to submit to his authority, to say, Lord, uh, what is it that you created me to do, right? God is the one that made this world and he made us and it's his purpose if we're to live rightly ordered lives that we're to fulfill, that we're to understand, that we're even to hope for. And if we, we seek God in our lives, we, we seek him first, we begin our day uh, by seeking him and saying, Lord, how can I serve you and what is it that you're doing in my life? then our, our minds are going to be changed. And we're going to start seeing the people around us differently. We're going to start seeing them the way the Lord sees them. We're not going to see them the way that, uh, that other people see them. We're going to start seeing them the way that God sees them. And we'll start to think differently about them. And we'll start to, to, to love them and to want to serve them rather than to ridicule and reject them. So if we love God, we will seek His commandments. We will seek to love the Lord. And then we read that when we do that, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, what does this mean? Is this a transaction? Does this mean do what your Father in Heaven tells you and then He'll give you the Holy Spirit? Is this some kind of a trade that we're doing? Not at all. It's a door that gets opened when we are ready to receive the Holy Spirit. Because if we're defending ourselves and we're saying, I did these things and I've got good reason and nobody can tell me any different, then we're rejecting God. We're rejecting help. We're saying, I don't need it. I don't need the help of God. But if we repent, if we say, I do need the Lord, and we say, what I've been doing has been bringing the consequences that I don't like, and I want to live my life according to God's will, then we're inviting the Holy Spirit in. He's the physician. He's the healer. The doctor doesn't come to our house. He doesn't come to mine, at least, and knock on the door and say, how are you feeling? Everything okay? Can I do anything for you? We have to go to him and say, I'm sick. I'm in need of help. And our Heavenly Father and physician is no different. We have to 
submit to him and say, I'm sick, I need help, I need to, to be transformed, I need to think and feel differently about you and about my neighbors so that my life can be rightly ordered. And he says, when we do that, we'll get help. We'll get the healing. We'll get the medicine, the prescription that we need, which is the Holy Spirit. And, and at first Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is here with you, right? And of course he is, because the Holy Spirit is wherever the Son is, right? The Father is in the Son, and the Spirit is in the Son, as the believer is in the Son, right? So the Holy Spirit is always with the Son. He's never far away. And everywhere where the Word of God is taught and, and, and preached, the Holy Spirit is there. So the Holy Spirit has been there with the disciples this whole time, right? He has been with them. And Jesus says then, he says, you know him for he dwells with you. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is already dwelling with you. He's here. But then he has a further promise that is yet to be fulfilled here at this point in Jesus's narrative and will be in you. And that makes all the difference. For the Holy Spirit not just to be with us, but to be in us. And this is what happens 50 days after Jesus rises from the dead. So what is the sequence? Jesus rises from the dead on Easter day, right? That weekend of the Passover. Because he is the Passover lamb, right? He is slain as the Passover lamb at this feast where the blood of the lamb is placed upon the believer so that the angel of death passes over, right? So death has been defeated, right? Christ has defeated death, right? He is healing us by destroying death and now... Um, he appears to them. He appears to them with this resurrected body. And he says, this is the promise. This is what you're hoping for. This is the resurrected life that you've been looking for. He's, he's building in the believer's hope. And he does this for 40 days. We read in Acts chapter 1 that for 40 days, Jesus appeared to the believers. So it's the 12, it's the women, it's that group of 120. It's many disciples that the Lord appears to for 40 days. And you might think that 40 days is just happenstance. But I happen to believe that 40 is a really important number in Scripture, right? When we look at that number 40, we might think, why is the Lord appearing for 40 days? What's He telling us? And we might think about the 40 days of the washing of Noah, or the 40 years of the, the wilderness wandering, right? And what's the Lord doing there? He's, he's washing them, and He's sorting them, right? It's laundry time. The Lord is washing and sorting them. He's putting them in good order. He's saying, you're not Egyptians. You're not to live as Egyptians, right? You're not these people who have been sinning. I'm going to sort you. I'm going to wash you in this water. And I'm going to put you into the ark. And I'm going to order your lives to worship, right? So for 40 days, Jesus has been doing this wash. He's been washing his disciples. And he's been ordering them and organizing them. And they're in their right place, right? We read that they're all together in one place. And they are worshiping the Lord. And they're praying. So they're all where they need to be. Worshiping and praying. And this is what we did for those 10 days from the Ascension to Pentecost. Now what's Pentecost? Pentecost, if you'll remember, is a feast of ancient Israel. 50 days after the Passover, they celebrated what was called the Feast of Weeks. Right? Because it's a week of weeks. Right? 7 times 7. 49 days from the Passover until Pentecost. So a week of weeks, or the Feast of Weeks. And they celebrated then the gift of the law. The first fruits of the harvest. So they celebrated the Lord on Sinai coming down and giving Moses the law. So they celebrate first the Passover, right? Him bringing them up out of Egypt. And then the Lord coming down and giving them the law. And this is what they're doing in the week of weeks. And so all these Jews from around the world, all speaking different languages, are gathering 
for this Feast of Pentecost, this week of weeks. And on that 50th day, on that completeness, right? Seven times seven, completeness times completeness, right? The Lord is saying everything is fulfilled. Everything is accomplished. Now he gives them the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. And this means that the law is not just out here and it's not just in their minds, but it's transforming their hearts so that they not only know what's right and what the Lord's way of living is, but they want it. They hope for it. They hunger for it. And now with this, with this faith and with this love and with this hope, they now can, can rest in the Lord. They know that He is accomplishing these things. And the curse of Babylon is reversed. The curse of Babylon is reversed. We are no longer many people separated by many languages, but we are one people gathered into one language, which is that of the Holy Spirit of God, of His love, of His hope, of His faith. And when we have His faith, hope, and love, our hearts are transformed, and we are ready to speak the words of the works of God. This is what we read that St. Peter does. He proclaims the works of God. He tells people, this is what God's done. No longer do we talk about what we've done. No longer do we talk about, about what we've accomplished. No longer do we talk about what we have to offer, but we tell people about God and His saving grace, about His love, about His hope, about His faith. And we celebrate and point to Him. And when we do that, we are healed. We're transformed. And we're ready to rest in the Spirit of God dwelling within our hearts this day and forever. Forevermore. For all of eternity. We rest in Him as He dwells in us.